Welcome to the SSP Polyvagal Podcast. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and safe and sound protocol related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system, psychological state, emotions, and behavior. The Safe and Sound Protocol intervention is an acoustic vagal nerve stimulation therapy that is helping people all around the world. Welcome to episode number 11. I'd like to say hi to all my regular listeners and a welcome to my new listeners. Some of you may have noticed that I changed the name from the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast to Polyvagal Informed Therapy to the SSP Polyvagal Podcast, Exploring Biobehavioral Resonance. I did so to reflect the range of topics I would like to explore to help us all learn about our brain, mind and body and how to maximise health. Which brings me to today's guest. Dr. Michael Graziano is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Princeton University, author of both novels and science books, his most recent being Rethinking Consciousness. Today we talk about his book, The Spaces Between Us which covers his research and other related topics about peripersonal space. Peripersonal space is the space about our body that acts like a protective bubble, triggering defensive responses if a threat is detected. When I read his work, I was so excited and there were so many connections to polyvagal theory that I felt it was important for you all to hear about his work. Thank you so much for coming and spending some time with me today to talk about your work. I really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. I notice it next to your face there (laughs) on the shelf behind you. Yes, yes, yes. This is what we want to focus on today because I think, as I said in my email, a lot of the listeners for this podcast are primarily practitioners who work in in therapy, psychologists, mental health practitioners. Um, occupational therapist. So I know when I discovered your work, which I shared, I first heard about it when you did the podcast on the brain science Mm. podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It just resonated with me so much that immediately I went and ordered the audio book. There were so many connections that made that I, you know, had to get your hard copy as well. So I have many different sections in the book highlighted I think it's it's really important um, work to share with practitioners, Um, particularly the podcast is about obviously an acoustic intervention, but which was developed from the polyvagal theory. So a lot of practitioners look at the connection between the underlying physiology and our biology and, and behavior and, and, and mental health. And so when I think this work is going to be really important for them to know about. Good. Well, I'm glad that you saw so much in it, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So I thought let's just start with telling listeners about yourself, a little bit of background and the work that you're doing. I know you're working in consciousness right now, but... Right. Right. So I'm Mike Graziano, and uh, I'm a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Princeton University. I run a lab here. Uh, I also write uh, books, uh, many of them on science, on the topics that I work on. I've worked on a lot of different topics. 
Uh, I worked for a while on vision, on how the brain processes sensory information, mostly vision, but some touch and some uh, audition. I also worked for a while for about 10 years on motor control, on how the brain really coordinates complex movements, uh, especially in the spaces near the body. And all that work on vision and sensory systems kind of came to play in that. And, um, and uh, to some extent, that's the basis of the particular book that you're mostly interested in. So the work on the space near the body. Mm-hmm. And, um, and since then, the third major topic that I've worked on is the brain basis of consciousness. And, um, and obviously that's a very philosophical and complicated topic. But one of the main components that I study is um, how it is, how we use the idea of consciousness socially. Mm -hmm. That is, we attribute conscious intent to others and to ourselves. And that's kind of part of the social glue that keeps us all together. And Mm -hmm. so in a way, all of my work, whether it's sensory processing, motor control, or, uh, brain basis of consciousness, uh, in some ways, it's all anchored into something practical about how people behave in the world, and especially how people behave toward each other. Mm -hmm. And I think what I like about your writing and your your work is that you really pull an evolutionary perspective into that and how we've evolved, and and particularly looking at um, sort of survival or defensive mechanisms and how different interactive nonverbal communications have evolved from that and that work really connects deeply into polyvagal theory so um, uh, i haven't i haven't read your current book but it's definitely on my list to to read next and hopefully we can maybe do another one of these in the future and and sort of yeah unravel that and and help make those connections into polyvagal theory for listeners as well yeah so let's dig into this book and I, I, I was thinking when I was sort of thinking about how we're going to sort of you know, go through today, but, you know, you really take the listeners on a journey through the book. And, and so I kind of want to sort of follow that progression because in that journey, you kind of give context to different ideas that you bring up later on in the book. So in the beginning, you do start talking about spatial patterns in, in animals and right. those boundaries. and that subconscious kind of space around that, that as soon as some sort of threat comes into an animal's boundary or what they perceive is threat through just their perception, that they will either move off or the sort of subtle responses based on those spaces. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So uh, the idea of personal space is now common. I mean, it's uh, common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, everyone sort of knows, oh, we have a bubble of personal space around us. And everyone thinks that this is uh, grounded in human psychology. But it was actually first discovered and first studied by uh, an animal behaviorist, by a zoologist. Uh, so the uh, longtime famous uh, um, head of the Zurich Zoo, <laughs> Uh, Hedegger uh, noticed 
when he went to various parts of the world, Africa and so on, and he studied uh, animals in the wild, he noticed that they had this pattern that he called a flight zone, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you, you would think that lion approaches zebra, zebra runs at sight of lion, and that's not what happens. The zebra is pretty calm and pretty much just stands there, clearly aware of the lion, until it crosses a border. And there's an invisible border that the zebra brain seems to be computing, this spatial bubble around itself, which uh, is quite large for a prey animal uh, toward a dangerous predator. But it's only when the lion gets in that bubble then the animal moves away. And, um, and Hedegger studied this. He used to walk around the plains uh, harassing the zebras, um, <laughs> measuring their flight zones. And, um, and he realized that this is a, a general phenomenon. And it's true of zebras, it's true of birds, it's true of lizards, it's true of cats and dogs and his zoo animals and people. And that at all of these animals, we all construct a bubble probably um, at multiple distances to ourselves under different circumstances. And it's a computation that's built deep into the brain. It's a defensive uh, region. It's a margin of safety. And we're programmed so that when something enters the margin of safety, uh, it triggers a response and we move away and we reinstate the margin of safety. And this is really the origin of the whole concept of personal space. It's something that's absolutely ubiquitous across, well, most of the animal uh, kingdom. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that was discovered in the, in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And since you're bringing out fight and flight, I'm just going to make this connection to, um, to autism because we have a lot of practitioners who work with autism who are, you know, often have behavioral responses or fight and flight responses. And sort of bringing this idea of personal bubble space and understanding that many of um, individuals with neurodevelopmental challenges have sensory processing difficulties, which I know we're going to get into as yeah. we discuss, for therapists to be thinking about this bubble of space and be thinking yeah. about knowing that this, this nervous system is probably not processing visual, auditory, tactile information in a neurotypical way. So that bubble of space is going to be very unique for that individual, which is unique yeah. for all of us anyway, which I know we talk about when, when you layer in the research around anxiety mm -hmm. and emotions. But since you're talking about fight and flight, um, I just wanted to help make that, that, that connection because... Um, That's right. So mm -hmm. you can imagine if mm -hmm. you don't if you're not able to construct that kind of spatial bubble anchored to yourself properly, uh, that would cause a pretty major derangement mm -hmm. or at least a disruption in your ability to interact with everything and anyone else. Mm -hmm. So um, that's majorly important. I mean, mm -hmm. to have a personal bubble or a protective bubble around you that's larger than normal because you're a nervous person, that's mm -hmm. one thing. That's mm -hmm. something, you know, people can handle and people can intuitively understand when they see that in you. But to have a person who hasn't even quite constructed the bubble and maybe everything at all distances and all around them is just constantly threateningly impinging on them, you know, to, to have a, a failure in the spatial construct itself, that's, that's actually um, something else that's quite disruptive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then you move on to start to talk about the startle reflex. 
great. Yes, and um, and I want to talk about this because it really sort of speaks to those old underlying neural systems that are wired into us uh, to essentially help us survive. But I think what's unique in your writing is that you make that connection, well, how, how that can shift and be heightened, but you make that a connection to to social relationships and what kind of messages is that giving to others? Um, That's right. That. So, um, yeah, so talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, I did some experimental work on, um, on Startle. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where my uh, lab group really began to notice uh, something peculiar about the Startle reaction. So the Startle reaction has been studied for more than 100 years now. It was initially discovered in the early part of the 20th century and uh, by Strauss, the German uh, uh, scientist Strauss, who had this very remarkable method of taking, I mean, it's kind of horrible, uh, but he would, he would go into psychiatric hospitals and take patients uh, and then film them with his ancient, uh, you know, first generation uh, low frame rate cameras uh, while his assistant would sneak up behind them and fire off a pistol. And then he would film their startle response and uh, he discovered that there's a reflexive response that's very fast. That's not what we normally think of as the startle, because what we intuitively think of as a startle is slow. It's what we're consciously aware of, and it's like spinning around and looking, uh, but or screaming or something. But the the real initial um, reflex is blindingly fast. It now we know it's processed in the uh, brainstem in very, very primitive parts of the brain, and it works very, very quickly. Within five milliseconds, you're already getting the eyes squinting. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's this a set of behaviors that puts the body in a protective stance, sort of crunched down with the face crunched up. And, um, uh, and we would film these startle responses in the lab and study them. And that's when we began to realize, you know, this is something peculiar because they all, they look like um, smiles. <laughs> no, what the heck is going on there? Why does a startle look like a smile? You know, let the teeth go like that and the eyes squint and the cheeks bunch up and it's like, that's a smile. Uh, and we just got very curious about that as well as sneaking up behind each other and startling each other all the time with a camera, hidden camera. But um, we, we basically pieced together a story which is not 100% original with us, I mean, the, the, there's been hints of this in the literature, that uh, when, well, when you startle, so um, first of all, I'll start with this part. When you startle, uh, it's, it evolved to protect the body and the components on the face evolved to protect the face, especially the eyes. And so physically, it's just squint your eyes, bunch your cheeks up, which helps wrinkle the skin around your eyes. And a consequence of your cheeks bunching up is that your upper lip pulls up and your teeth get exposed. Mm -hmm. And so you get this thing that kind of looks like a smile, but also looks just like when you uh, are in a dark room and then you go outside in the bright sunlight and you've got this sort of squinty sun smile that everyone is familiar with that isn't a real smile, it's just protect the eyes. That's what it is, physically protect the eyes. 
Um, but so that's how it initially evolves. But now you have very complex social animals who are sophisticated, who look at each other and see that in each other. And that facial expression, it's like a, um, a data breach. It's mm -hmm. like a leak of information about your inner state uh, out to the outside world, sort of telegraphing it to anyone who's watching, who says, ah, that creature is startling. Uh, that creature must be on edge, nervous, worried, otherwise, he or she wouldn't make that big a startle reaction. So now I have information on the inside of that person or that, that you know, primate back in our early <laughs> evolutionary history. Uh, so uh, uh, evolution then takes hold of that, you know, this um, signal that creatures are inadvertently spreading to each other about their inner states. And, um, and that means that, um, uh, uh, essentially a circuit evolves for, in, for seeing that and interpreting it and saying, ah, that creature is not a threat to me because that creature is a nervous creature. That's not a bold, aggressive creature. That's a nervous creature, right? And then, of course, there's another evolutionary step where uh, animals take advantage of that state and say, oh, okay, I mean, obviously not at a cognitive level, but... <laughs> I'm personifying what happens, but evolutionarily speaking, if you could personify it, it might go something like this. The creature says, oh, okay, uh, in order to convince him that I'm not aggressive, I have to mimic a really massive startle response because he's already learned that that means I'm not aggressive. Mm -hmm. And so now you have this evolution of uh, the ability to produce mimic startle responses to communicate a lack of aggression. And so now we evolved to have these very exaggerated squint the eyes, pull the cheek muscles up, bunch the cheeks up, expose the upper lips, mm. and often pull the head down, mm -hmm. raise the shoulders a little. That's mm -hmm. a super exaggerated telegraphed uh, distortion of a startle response. And it has turned into this signal that we use to say, I am not aggressive. I am friendly. Mm -hmm. And that's a signal that you see actually in uh, uh, many, many primates. So it's not just people, but you see that kind of uh, non-aggression, um, teeth exposed, slightly squinty eyes. Um, that's, that facial expression is common across, uh, I, I think, almost all um, primate species that are out there. So this is the origin of one of our main social expressions that comes straight from what began as a, a raw physical method of protecting the body against a, a, an immediate threat. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. And I like how you, you really emphasize, you know, the eyes. You talk about the startle reflexes first of being a protective component of the eyes, because the eyes yeah. obviously are very important so we can process our space. But you really talk about obviously the eyes is, is, is how we really connect with each other. It's how we, yeah. we do read. The, the underlying physiological state of the other, you know, are you safe to come close to? Are you safe That's to, right. to connect? That's right. Them? Yeah. So, so there's lots, mm. sorry, there's lots of reasons mm. why the eyes seem to be the, the window to the soul, mm. but this is one of the reasons because mm. those reflexive protective mechanisms emphasize the eyes, the wrinkling around the eyes, the exact shape of how the cheek muscles bunch toward the eyes, all of that action around the eyes 
um, this is the epicenter of the startle reflex. And therefore, it's also the place you look first mm -hmm. if you're a clever animal using the startle reflex to uh, infer information about the inside of the other creature. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the eyes, uh, not so much the, the eyeballs, right? right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, uh, all the stuff right around the eyes, that becomes the, the, the key place to hone in on when you want to read the inner state of the other creature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very cool. So then we think about people who, who are having difficulty reading facial expression of, of others and how that must create that disorganization of knowing, you know, reading the other person's physiology to know if they're safe or not to come next to, to, to interact with. Mm. Right. Yes, mm. that's right. Mm. Mm. So then you move on in the book to talk about some of your early research with um which is just fascinating with anesthetized monkeys um now correct me if i'm if i'm if i'm wrong in in understanding that that work that that these monkeys were essentially unconscious yes that you were reading the neural activity um which i'll have you explain and the neurons were firing as you were bringing visual information towards the body. Yeah. Which for me, I'm going to get you to explain, but for me just highlights, well, we know our brain is active when we're sleeping anyway, but yeah. here we're in a, you know, in your semicolon, you're unconscious. Yeah. And your brain is still processing information coming towards your body which just highlights so much more this underlying neural activity in the brain processing the safety bubble. So yeah. Um, so yeah, could you talk about those studies? Sure, yeah. So that was quite a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, yes, we, we used, uh, it, uh, so we studied monkeys mm -hmm. and um, we would anesthetize them and study the activity in the brain. And this is a, a, a very old uh, method that um, nobody does anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but that was sort of the, the tail end of that uh, era of anesthetized animals. People used to think that um, you could simplify the science by anesthetizing the brain and then studying it in the sleeping state. And then it turns out that that's um, what it does is it takes, it takes out higher cognition and it takes out uh, more, you know, it takes out the emotional state and it takes out all kinds of interesting complexities and it leaves behind really basic uh, processing that's very robust and kind of resistant to these anesthesias. And so in a sense, that's a clue already that we could see that kind of activity. We were tapping into something very basic. And um, yeah, it, uh, so for us, way this is way, way back. I was a graduate student when I started that work, just actually an undergrad when I started that work. Uh, and um, uh, and we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we went into some new part of the brain uh, that nobody had really studied thoroughly before. We didn't know what to expect. And uh, and the way you do it is you, uh, you insert these very, very thin wire electrodes. And this is a technique that's actually been refined on people. 
because often for medical reasons, one has to study the human brain and map out where this is and where the epileptic focuses and so on. So all these techniques have been worked out in, in um, human surgery. But we borrow these techniques and we take these um, very, very fine hair-like electrodes and uh, we can uh, put them in a device and lower them in and very, very carefully measure the activity of individual neurons. Uh, and you can hear their activity, you pipe it over a loudspeaker and it sounds like clicking. Uh, and what you're trying to do is figure out what drives that neuron, what information does it carry? And we ran into these neurons, they should have been in uh, an area of the brain that controls movement, but instead they were responding to sensory signals and in specific to visual signals. So any object that so the animal's asleep, but his eyes are propped open. And uh, any object that looms close to a particular region of the body would trigger a particular neuron. Mm -hmm. And the neuron was very interesting. It would respond to the sight of something looming, let's say, toward the shoulder. It would also respond to something touching the shoulder. Mm -hmm. So you could cover the guy's eyes, and then, of course, he doesn't see the thing looming, but as soon as it touched a single hair on his shoulder, these neurons would fire off. Mm -hmm. And so we would find a neuron that basically is like a radar that's saying there's something near within about arm's length of the body looming toward me or touching mm -hmm. a particular spot on my body. And that was the neuron's job. And another neuron might cue into a different part of the body on the face or on you know the forehead or on the other shoulder and so on. So these neurons were mapping out the space right around the body, firing at this intense rate when things loomed in and touched. Mm -hmm. uh, they were personal space neurons. Mm -hmm. uh, and we spent years and years studying these personal space neurons and what their exact spatial properties were, how they computed space. Um, it turned out they combined vision, touch, and audition. So they really bring together all the relevant sensory information. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not interested in whether you saw it, felt it, or heard it. All they care about is that the object is there in a location relative to your body. Mm -hmm. And whether it's moving in about to touch or whether it's moving away and therefore safe. So these are the kinds of computations these neurons are interested in. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we studied those for years and years. Mm -hmm. And you said what was interesting, because these ones were located in, in the motor cortex, which was not, you got sensory, you know, polysensory neurons, which are essentially in the, in the motor cortex, which was yeah. uh, you know, obviously a very interesting finding. Yeah, it was very strange. It was very unexpected. And... Um, the, I think the reason why they're there, so the motor cortex and motor systems all over the brain, uh, typically they don't have hardwired sensory responses. You can probably get them in a sense to respond to sensory signals because if you train somebody to always press the red button, then every time the red button lights up, obviously their hand is going to move and then their motor system will activate. Mm -hmm. uh, and people had known that for a long time. But these seem to be very uh, hardwired uh, in anesthetized brains, mm -hmm. um, very short latency. So you present the stimulus and within um, 
50 milliseconds, the neurons firing. They're just a hardwired input <clears throat> from sensory direct into the motor area. And there's a, kind of a little patch in the motor cortex <clears throat> and little patches in other motor structures around the brain. So this little patch uh, specializes in this kind of input. Mm -hmm. And that's from, that, that was a clue that we were looking at basically some kind of cortical reflex, mm -hmm. something really hardwired, really important, mm -hmm. uh, and indeed turned out for uh, this protective protection of the body, this personal space bubble and protection of the body. So something really under the surface, automatic, um, not high level cognitive. It's just always there, always functioning mm -hmm. and, um, and necessary for survival. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and in your book, you, you have some diagrams showing how this kind of this bubble, this protective bubble around this, the body, um, so that space where it's more kind of around our head and our yeah. front, but we still have these sort of bubbles around yep. and, uh, <clears throat> as, yep. as well. Um, and then you add an interesting component to it. You know, obviously, you know that I'm an occupational therapist, so we look at those underlying um, sensory systems and how they're integrated and and um, I know you you said in the book that you wish you'd you'd added more of looked at this component but then you did talk about a little bit with the vestibular system and and that you felt that um, and you talk about it again later on but you really feel like it, it was the anchor the glue that helped yeah. bring those other sensory systems that's um, right that are organized for the body. That's right. Mm. So the way these neurons work is, as I said, they're um, multi-sensory, mm. right? They put together vision and touch and hearing and they're computing. Is there an object here with respect to me, with respect mm. to my shoulder? Is it going to hit my shoulder or is it going to hit my forehead? Is it on that trajectory? Uh, and, and in order to do that, in order to align all these different senses, uh, there's certain computation and certain information the system needs. Uh, so you need to know where your head is angled and how your head is moving. If you don't know that, you can't make predictions about how you know, the, the position of your head is gonna interact with the position of external objects. So you need the vestibular sense mm -hmm. and uh, if you want to know if something's going to whack your arm, you better know where your arm is. Mm -hmm. Like uh, vision comes in through the eyes, but here's your arm. So you need to understand all the joint angles between the eyeball and the arm. Otherwise, you don't know where your arm is in relation to that incoming object. Mm -hmm. And so you need uh, proprioception, as it's called, so joint sense, and you need vestibular sense, and all these are the anchors. These are the glue that helps you get visual information and tactile information and auditory information all aligned correctly so that you can build the space around you. And yes, if you don't have a good vestibular system, if you're uh, developmentally with a, uh, some uh, problem with your vestibular system, that will cause massive disruption in your ability to build these kinds of uh, spatial registrations between the senses mm -hmm. and so all these protective bubbles of space that are kind of the foundation of how we interact with the world around us 
um, they, they don't work very well or they, they fall apart, they don't come into register properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know in the book you, you, you talk about, you go and give descriptions about some of the different studies that you did to help you sort of work out this, this space. So um, I'm not going to get you to explain all those, so people need to go and read this book. But I thought um, then you talked about the biblical selves. <laughs> and, yes. and how didn't make the connections at the time when when you did this little sort of side study but I wonder if you could um, yeah talk about that sure so for a long time we actually had no clue what these neurons were for uh, there they are in a system in the brain and specific zones in the brain hooked together by uh, you know cabling by uh, neural connections uh, and these neurons had very similar properties in different parts of the brain. It was clear that the different senses were converging and being put together and uh, building a, a model of the space around the body and objects in that space. And we didn't know what they were for. Uh, and so we, and, but they were in the motor system. And so we came up with this speculation, which uh, in retrospect sounds almost vacuous because it's sort of general. And we said, oh, they're, they're, they must be there for sensory motor integration because mm. they're sensory and they're in a motor area. And we put that in all our papers and it's very vague, but we didn't know, uh, you know, we, we said maybe it's for reaching toward things. Maybe it's for pulling away from things. Maybe it's for whatever, um, bringing hamburgers to your mouth. Uh, and we had all these ideas. Uh, we even got into, um, uh, what was it, Vogue magazine, I forget now, but uh, on a little article on how we had discovered how you find your lover's lips in the dark. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was sort of the highlight of my career, maybe. But, um, but all this was speculation about what these neurons were good for. Um, and we didn't understand that they were primarily protective and that the motor component was going to be withdrawal and protection and um, blocking dangerous things from hitting you, right? Mm -hmm. So we didn't understand that yet, mm -hmm. but we did stumble on an interesting phenomenon, and this is the biblical cell phenomenon, and it should have cued us in. Lots of things should have cued us in, and it took us a long time to finally hit that realization. Uh, but the biblical cells worked like this. We had our monkey at this point awake, Mm -hmm. uh, we moved into the more common way that you study people too, people and monkeys with in, um, indwelling electrodes. And then you study neural activity while they're doing interesting behavior and getting treats and um, behaving in interesting ways. And, um, and we would find a neuron that seemed to code or be a radar for the space, let's say near one side of the face. Like uh, anything that looms in toward the left cheek, uh, the neuron would fire like crazy and say, ah, something's there. Um, and then we thought, okay, let's use an object that the monkey's really interested in, an apple. Well, we had a plastic apple, so he wouldn't actually eat it, but he thought it was real and he would get excited by it. And we'd loom the apple in and the neuron would not respond. And we thought that's completely weird. I mean, he should be, he is really interested in it and it's looming into that region of space. Uh, and then we tried a rubber snake and monkeys don't like snakes, uh, but we had this rubber snake in the lab and they look at it with great suspicion. 
uh, and we'd hold the snake up and loom it in and the neuron would go crazy, fire like nuts. And we thought this is completely weird. We call them biblical cells because of the snake and the apple. But that, that's, <laughs> that's what we tested them with. And these neurons would go nuts over the rubber snake and fall silent at the apple. And it wasn't until much later that we realized, oh, of course, because it's a protective mechanism. And so if you are interested in an apple and you want to eat it, what you do is you dial down your protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. You make it quiescent and so that you are able to get the thing in through those protective layers to your mouth and eat it. Uh, but if it's a snake, of course, it's the opposite. You don't want it near you when you dial up the volume on all those protective mechanisms and they all start firing like crazy and they start triggering the withdrawal and the cringe mm -hmm. and the hand coming out. So uh, that's what it's for. That's what those neurons are for. They're really mm -hmm. specific for the defense side. Mm -hmm. So that was the biblical neurons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I read that, um, because obviously our world is working with nervous systems that, that don't interact with the world in a neurotypical way, maybe just think, are these neurons for certain nervous systems um, overly perceiving things in the environment, which you and I would typically see as non-threatening, is actually threatening, which is then putting them into a more heightened state of of, of arousal and, and what possibly might sensitize these biblical neurons to be a little bit more over sensitized. Um, so, so I think that was a really important find. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so certainly it, it plugs into that, that clinical angle. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't quite know what the answer is as to what specifically goes wrong in there yeah. or why it gets oversensitized. Mm -hmm. uh, or could it be that the, um, like I mentioned before, that if the, the spatial construct doesn't form correctly, mm -hmm. then kind of everything seems like a threat. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. No matter what its distance and no matter what it is, it just seems like it's right up in your face because you're, mm -hmm you haven't built the space correctly. And I, I don't know, but um, mm. it'd be very interesting to study these neurons in, okay. in those kinds of cases, although I'm not sure that that would be practically possible. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I know in your, in your work, you also talk about how this bubble of space, um, or even just the startle response, um, that when somebody is sensitized or more anxious, yeah that startle response becomes more exaggerated yeah. and it's more easy to elicit uh, mm -hmm. as, um, as well. Mm. That's right, yes. Mm. So that's classic. Yeah, so then keeping on with this, with these, investigating these neurons and, um, and this idea of this sort of protective bubble and defensive part, part of our defensive neural systems, then you moved into research where you actually um, you electrically stimulated these particular neurons. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about, um, provide a little bit of background and then sort of um, you know, talk about your research with that and what you've discovered? Sure, so uh, electrical stimulation, <clears throat> very ancient technique in the brain. It's been around, it actually, since the probably the very first uh, really significant significant physiology study in neuroscience was the discovery of the motor cortex in 1870. 
And that was the first successful stimulation experiment. And ever since then, it's been this uh, standard approach to studying different parts of the brain. And, um, and it turns out that uh, there's more complexity in that story that I won't, I won't um, go into here. But it turns out that when we electrically stimulated, at one point we began to use that technique. It's, it's like a way of querying a neuron or a clump of neurons. You, uh, instead of measuring through your little fine hair-like electrode, you're not just measuring the intrinsic electrical activity. What you're doing is piping a whisper, thin, tiny little signal, just enough to rev up the neurons around the electrode tip. Tiny little ball of neurons. And that sends signal through the system in some uh, mimic of a natural way. And what you're doing is you're asking the neurons, you're saying, okay, when you're active, what do you make the system do? And so it's a way of asking questions, of uh, functional questions of those neurons. And, uh, and finally, we got around to that. We had these neurons, for example, a, a little clump of neurons that respond when you touch the left side of the face, and they respond when anything looms toward the left side of the face or when there's a sound near there. So neurons cued into this region of space. What are they doing? Are they really there to eat hamburgers or to reach for something or whatever? Well, maybe we can find out if we electrically stimulate them. And so we did, and we triggered what seemed like a reflexive behavioral output. And, um, and it's important, as I'm describing this output, to remember that the um, animal that we're testing this on doesn't actually feel anything. It's just a movement output. We're not evoking a negative emotion in the animal. He's perfectly happy. He's sort of feeding himself marshmallows with the other hand at the same time. But um, as we're stimulating, the motor output is absolutely characteristic. And so if it's the left side of the face that these neurons are coding, the left eye closes and the left side of the face bunches up toward the eye and the head turns to the right and the shoulder comes up and the left hand flaps out to block. And it's a whole coordinated uh, defense, protect, block kind of movement. And so consistently these neurons coding bubbles of space around the body, when you really rev them up, they trigger protection and defensive uh, actions to uh, protect those particular parts of the body that they um, are uh, focused on. So that was, that was the final piece that finally we were like, oh, that's what they do. <laughs> there's no feeding of hamburgers and there's no finding your lover's lips. I hope not. You should, should not be reacting to your lover's lips in that way. So these, are, these are all about defense and protection. <laughs> um, so I thought that must have probably felt like a real like, aha sort of moment when you sort of saw that. That must have just been amazing yeah. to observe. Yeah, it was. It was astounding. It was, uh, it was absolutely crystal clear. There are few, few findings in science that are really absolutely crystal clear, and that one clarified everything. Mm -hmm. So again, clinically, when you think of a nervous system that's, that's over-perceiving threat in the environment, that um, these neurons, if they're, if they're overly stressed, they're going to be triggering those sort of motor responses yep um, yep subconsciously 
Um, yeah. Whole, you know, the, corti- the cortex has time to really respond or dampen um, that motor response. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that reflex will kick in. If, so mm-hmm. the more anxious you are for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, or the more you perceive threats around you, what's happening is that network is being disinhibited. It's, it's more revved up. It's much easier to trigger a much bigger reaction through that network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you know, you're very calm and feel very safe mm-hmm. uh, and you expect the threat and it's not even really a threat, mm-hmm. all of that tends to quiet down that network. And so you see this very simple relationship, which had been noted before in the psychological literature, mm-hmm. that your bubble of personal space grows and shrinks depending on the um, state of anxiety mm-hmm. or stress that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so it's not just um, a bubble and it's not just anxiety. It's also a whole set of uh, uh, reflexive characteristic behaviors of at the weak end, at the subtle end of just pulling back Mm -hmm. or not approaching. Mm -hmm. And as that uh, network gets more and more revved up, the behaviors become more and more marked and you start seeing a little more of a cringe and a little more of a pulling back, a little more of the squinting eyes. And then if you really rev it up, then you get that giant ah, kind of cringe with the hand flapping out and the head turning away. But it's Mm -hmm. kind of a spectrum Mm. all the way from a judicious choice not to move forward Mm. (laughs) all the way to an extreme uh, um, pulling back and blocking with your hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you observe anything where there was actually like a swiping away, like a push, like a, like a defensive, like I'm going to hit out at that at all? Did you see any sort of those sort of behaviors? Well, yes, actually. So uh, typically, in neurons in, in, in a part of the system that protects the face, for example, mm-hmm. if you rev up that, you will trigger an arm movement that swipes and pushes away. Mm-hmm. So yes, you get those kinds of blocking, slapping, pushing mm-hmm. movements. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it's a part of the system that protects the hand in particular, mm-hmm. then it won't push out, it'll pull in, it'll whip behind the back <laughs> and hide. Yeah. So there's a whole set of behaviors that we've all seen that we're all sort of intuitively familiar with that you can trigger uh, automatically and uh, by uh, stimulating these different pieces of that defense network. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So often um, children on, this, on the autism spectrum or other children have sensory processing challenges um, tactile sensitivities, all that bubble of space. Um, often, you know, they're in classroom situations or standing in line and, and will be reprimanded for responses where they've, you know, pushed out and hit at somebody else. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so I think this kind of knowledge helps understanding that these neurons may be overly triggered for these sort of yeah more fragile nervous systems yeah i think also uh parents of uh, autistic children must be used to occasionally getting whacked in the face (laughs) you know the Mm -hmm. kid just suddenly gives a big flap in your face as if hitting you and pushing you away 
And this is a classic uh, reflex. It's yeah. just, it's, it's a, that system suddenly um, uh, giving a sort of a burst response. Yeah. So, yeah. And the fact that it's not deliberate, it's subconscious, it's a survival mechanism based on yeah. the threat. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So the response to it should be, you know, a more understanding, empathetic response. So sure. Move that nervous system to being feeling safe yeah yeah that's right mm. um so was there anything else you wanted to add about those studies that you think oh well i mean i could talk endlessly about them <laughs> because i spent so much of my life <laughs> studying those parts of the brain but uh if if you want to move on you certainly you you certainly can i mean yes. that was a long time ago that yeah, i that i right. did the uh, the monkey work yeah ages yeah. ago yeah, I'm sure there's, there's probably lots more that you could share that were just absolutely fascinating. But I know we've got, um, I know there's some more information I'd love you to talk about. Um, and I know that I'm aware of our time as well. So then um, you talk about some of the other human, you know, studies in humans that help sort of, you know, develop more that understanding of this, you know, bubble space about our bodies. But, and some of that is fascinating. Um, you talk about cross-queuing. Um, But actually, I wanted to move on because we can talk about that. I wanted to talk about, move on to how we talked about um, um, body schema studies. And uh -huh. the one in particular, um, I know you talk about the, um, the rubber hands, but the one in particular about the fake body. And, um, and yeah, could you talk about that? Because I think, um, yeah. Share that story about the, the, fake, the fake body. Sure. This is uh, Henrik Ursen mm -hmm. in uh, Sweden, and he's done a whole long series of studies on this general to topic. That's sort of his topic. And, uh, and it did start with the rubber hand, mm -hmm. the rubber hand illusion, which uh, was described by um, actually um, pe people at Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, um, the rubber hand illusion, to start with that, you uh, take your real hand and hide it under a table mm -hmm. and you take a rubber hand and put it on the table and you're sitting there looking at this rubber hand and the experimenters on the other side of the table looking at you and, and, and you're like, well, that's not my hand. Obviously that's a piece of rubber, but cute idea. And the experimenter takes two paintbrushes and one of them, he strokes the rubber hand in view. Mm -hmm. You see it stroking. And the other paintbrush under the table, he's stroking your real hand. Mm -hmm. You don't see it, but you feel it. Mm -hmm. And so now you have the sight of a hand getting stroked with uh, ex ex exactly simultaneous with the feel of your own hand getting stroked. Mm -hmm. And that vision and touch brought together in synchrony triggers uh, a realignment of your body system. And so you start to feel like the rubber hand is yours mm. and it's spooky. I've done those things before. I mean, I've been the subject and, and it's the spookiest thing because you know, it's not intellectually, yeah. but it feels like that's your hand. That's it. That's your hand. Um, and uh, it's like some weird invisible thing reaches out and possesses it and pulls it into your body schema. And interestingly, the way it, it, one of the best ways you can demonstrate it, there are lots of ways you can demonstrate the illusion objectively. Uh, but one of the best ways you can demonstrate it is at that point, 
you take out a knife and you <laughs> reach out to stab the rubber hand and people react with extraordinary uh, startle and you get this big galvanic skin response uh, because all their defensive mechanisms get reflexively triggered because you're threatening what is now incorporated into their body. Uh, so that's the rubber hand illusion. Um, what um, Urson has done is extended to other parts of the body and including a, a, a fake body. Mm -hmm. So you have people look through goggles or, or, or through a, um, you know, a, a visor pro projection system that uh, over their eyes and they see, um, uh, well, there's many different ways one can do this, uh, but you see a fake rubber body and you see someone stroking the body. And in real life at the same time, you feel someone stroking your own body in the same anatomical location. And so very quickly, the fake body feels like yours. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you can do therefore is convince people, I mean, not intellectually, they know it's all fake but they get the feel that they have a little tiny body they used to have a normal size and now they're like dwarf sized or you can get people to feel like they're giants and they suddenly have a huge body uh, so you can cause these massive distortions in body image because you've tricked their body schema into adopting a different body and, the, and that's, that's astounding. And uh, there's a whole long series of studies on, on that topic from that lab. So it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think your, your summary comment, you know, about those studies, you sort of say that, you know, it shows that we construct perception of surroundings from the body outward. Which I think, that's right. Yeah, which is really um, just connects. So, you know, why, working on the body is so important in, in, in therapy and you know, often across mental health, people who experience trauma often have a difficulty of processing their body and their body in space and their connection with their body. So that's right. How they connect with the that's right. world can be impacted. So, so that was one uh, to, to me, one of the key findings was that when you change people's body schema, you also change their perception of the objects around them. And so they can see objects as very large and far away or smaller and close up, uh, depending on how they perceive their own size of their own body and size and location of their own body. And so the external world just the things around us, just where is the door? Where is the chair? Is that a small glass or a big jug? Uh, those kinds of things are being uh, decided based um, sort of in relation to the body schema. And the, so the body schema is of this of the construct of touch and vision and proprioception and vestibular sense and so on. And that's giving the foundation on which then we anchor our perception of everything else in the world around us. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, so then you go on uh, to talk about how our space um, kind of envelopes tools that we, yes. that we interact with. Yeah, so can you talk That's about right. that? That's right. Yeah. Sure. So 
it turns out that these systems that uh, I studied in, in the monkey and that other people extended to the human brain, so these systems that process bubbles of space around the body, they're mainly protective systems, um, they seem to play a role, a fundamental role in tool use. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there may be lots of reasons for that, but a simple reason is uh, just as when you move your hand around, you don't want to bash into things. I mean, you sit at a table and you move your hand and you very rarely whack it against the edge of the table or knock things over. I mean, some people do some of the time, but we're, uh, we're actually pretty good at not hitting things with our hands. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to use our hands appropriately as a tool to pick things up and so on. Uh, and it turns out that uh, kind of computation gets extended uh, to a, a handheld tool like a fork. And so it's as if the bubble of space gets wrapped around the tool and one can see that physiologically in the brain, see the neurons coding that larger space around the tool. So uh, blind people uh, wrap auditory bubbles of space around their canes and people in wheelchairs wrap their sense of space around the wheelchair. And we do that in cars. I mean, you drive a car and you have an acute sense of the bubble of protective space around the car. That's how you prevent you, yourself from scraping and bumping. Uh, you have to develop that sense of the bubble of protective space. You incorporate it into your own body schema and then build the bubble of space around it. Uh, and without that, um, how do we use forks? How do we use pencils and pens? How do we uh, use, how do we drive? How do we use any kind of handheld tool? How do we interact physically with the world? Mm -hmm. uh, all of that begins to break down. If you can't build uh, that, those bubbles of space and extend them around tools and incorporate the tools into your body schema, uh, that's the fundamental way that we learn how to interact with all the things in our human world. The, I mean, we live in a human world of, of tools. That's who we are. You know, we, we should have been called, uh, I don't know, ho homo tool user instead <laughs> of homo sapien. I don't know how wise we are. So homo sapiens is maybe not the most accurate name, but we are certainly tool users. Uh, yeah. And it depends four square on uh, wrapping those bubbles of space around the tool. Mm -hmm. And then you're even talking about how that bubble space can, it was like that empathy extension. And um, you talk about your, when you're at the wall of China and your son walking on, on the edge of the, the, the wall. And you oh, yes. We yeah. often have, uh, everyone's familiar with this. Yeah. That um, it's, it's uh, so the, bubble of space, protective space, is not just about you yourself. It's not just you construct this bubble, something impinges in it, and you back away or react. We're also computing other people's bubbles of space all the time as part of our social interaction. Uh, and so when we see other people's bubbles of space uh, threatened or, uh, you know, um, impinged upon by a threat, we react. Uh, we can't help it. Uh, and some of us are perhaps a bit more empathetic than others. And it also depends on who we're looking at, uh, if it's someone we really care about and are very cued into. So yes, I gave the example that we went to China. Actually, we were there at the time that I was writing uh, many of the chapters of this book. Um, 
and we visited China and we went to the Great Wall and there was my son running around the Great Wall, looking over the edge and looking out these windows. And every time he got close to the edge, I had this incredible stress uh, uh, protective bubble response. He'd lean forward and I would be like 10 feet away from him, but I'd start leaning back. <laughs> as if the wall was right in front of me and I was about to fall over. So uh, it was a very stressful uh, hour or two and I was very happy when we got off the Great Wall. But uh, that's common that pe people do that. Um, yeah. I mean, if you see someone uh, bump, you know, uh, walk into a lamppost, what do you do? You, the way you react is by uh, cringing uh, and making the same facial expression you would make if you hit the lamppost. You know, you sort of squint your eye and go, ooh, that mm. must have hurt. But mm. the facial expression is the same thing you would do if you walked into that lamppost. So mm -hmm. it's, mm. it's, it's part of our, our social toolkit yeah. that we're, we're constantly computing our own and other people's personal spaces and the kinds of reactions that would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So reminding me, um, there was a time when um, I was out and um, I, would, I was going for a run and my husband was out biking and we're coming back towards home and it's a steep incline, we live on a hill. And so I was running and then my husband just flies by on the bike at a point in the road where there's, there's quite, a, quite a, a turn. And I, I know he's a good bike rider, you know, and, um, but I felt my, this, this, um, this nervousness and just that sense of going around that curve and those butterflies of knowing, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it at the speed, particularly at the speed he was going? And um, and for reading your book, I'm like, oh, this is my very personal space, extending out to my husband, hoping that he's going to make that corner and not crash. Yeah. But I yep. have all those physiological, as you say, responses of almost being on that bike and holding on and wanting to make that tilt as you sort of lean into the, um, in, into that, that curve. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, sometimes called uh, simulation. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're using your own protective mechanism to simulate what his protective mechanism might be doing at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so you're in effect in his shoes at that moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Um, uh, and I like how in your in your work how you really connect connect this this work to to our social world and how we navigate in our in our social world. Mm -hmm. So I just really want to encourage people to read this book because it's you're, you're entertaining as as well. Um, I think you know you have some great chapter titles, and I just have to read this one out. You know, you know why it's sexy to let a vampire bite your neck. And other social consequences of uh, peripersonal space. So I'm not going to delve into that, but it really is, um, you know, one comment you talk about in terms of our defensive body and just kissing. You know that you really are lowering your your. It's like a dial. You talk about it being like a dial, and that we're lowering our peripersonal space to let somebody's like biting. Um, weapon come close to you and when you think about survival and how we've evolved you know that's it's so true and I think if we, we need to remember how you know we are mammals and that we've evolved and that we have these other old wiring systems to help protect us that we need to overcome 
to be good social beings. Um, yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so it's, so it's an entertaining, entertaining journey that you take in your books, and so I really appreciate that. Good. And then you finish with, with a personal experience with, um, yes. with the work that you've done, which is, I'm sure you felt like <clears throat> quite interesting that, you know, um, that your son has some challenges in, in navigating the space around his body. So, um, that's right. Yeah. So, so that's about- right. So we, um, we really, it, it, well, he has dyspraxia mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't very apparent to us mm-hmm. until about first grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had subtle problems with this or that and his handwriting was uh, unreadable uh, and he wasn't good at drawing and so on. But um, maybe he seemed like a little bit of a clumsy child but in first grade, that's when it really kind of all exploded. <clears throat> so, uh, and uh, it's a very long story and it's a very complicated story uh, and there are all kinds of components to it. And eventually many of these things got sorted out and he's quite fine now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has had just in- incredibly intensive physical therapy and occupational therapy. And, um, and as it happened, happens the key for him was the vestibular sense mm-hmm. and it turned out his vestibular sense was very very weak and uh and it completely scrambled his ability to understand spatial relations uh but uh with vestibular training which one can do mm-hmm. uh he uh, improved markedly and at this point uh, other than having illegible handwriting <laughs> he's uh he seems completely in the normal range and so everything's happy uh, it's been years Uh, since we've had these problems. But when we had the problems, they were incredible, they were severe. And what they showed me, uh, I think as I say in the book, first of all, it's one thing to study these things in the lab, then it's another thing to see them in real life. And it's just shocking to realize, wait, this is real. Um, And and the the other aspect to it that was quite shocking to me was the ripple effect. Mm-hmm. You have something subtle, which as it turns out was mostly a vestibular problem. It leads to a difficulty organizing the space around your body, mm-hmm. knowing where things are, building those bubbles of space. It leads to an inability to coordinate tools properly, to coordinate the interrelationships between spatial relationships between you and other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and everything breaks down, everything. So when you're in first grade, how do you learn to read properly if you can't hold the book properly? Mm -hmm. And how do you learn to do math if math starts out as pointing and counting and you can't point very well? And how do you learn to write if you don't have that bubble of space wrapped around the pencil so you don't really get where it is? And how do you relate to other kids when you're always bumping into them online and you're sitting on the rug in story time and your legs are hitting one kid and your arms whacking another one and everyone's getting mad at you. Uh, and, um, and teachers see some weird upsetting behavior that they don't get and start labeling it as um, 
you know, uh, some kind of intentional uh, malfeasance in this little six-year-old. Uh, and everything starts getting out of control and uh, the ripple effect is incredible. Everything falls apart, all from this one core of uh, a difficulty constructing the space right around your body. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's quite incredible how uh, vast that developmental cascade is. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that, that, that was eye-opening for us. Mm -hmm. But like I said, we did, we did mm -hmm. eventually after incredible amounts of work and uh, God knows how many experts that we talked to, um, mm -hmm. we discovered the vestibular problem mm -hmm. and addressed that and many other things. And the vestibular component seemed in his case to be uh, particularly helpful in, in, um, in addressing. Mm -hmm. And I think you speak to um, his story, but you really speak to the, the impact that it has on him you know, with his anxiety and emotions, but also yeah. with the social implications of, of, um, of dys dyspraxia. Yeah. Um, that, that you talk about that because he, those social boundaries, he had difficulty navigating that, that it was, you know, in other people's and the other grown-ups in his world, that it was sort of perceived as breaking those social expectations. Yes. Um, so then their responses to him was, was, was defensive or, you know, not yeah. sure how to interact in a more, yeah. you know, pro-social um, way. But then, and you talked about some of his coping um, mechanisms that that he did to help cope, and one of them was like rocking and and withdrawing um, mm -hmm. um, sort of yep. behaviors, which um, are important for people to realize that if you're approaching that from just the cognitive approach of this child's got anxiety, um, then you're not getting to the core of of the vestibular and the navigating body in space as as the core component to the emotional and other anxiety challenges that he was. That's having. right. And you speak in your book that it was it was very significant for him that he had those challenges. Oh yeah, everything broke down. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, just to spell it out, I mean, it got to this point where the the school, the teachers, and the principal, and so on, who were watching him. Uh, did not want him around in the classroom. His behavior was too weird to them and in their view too disruptive. And they, um, they kicked him out and they accused him of uh, sexually assaulting the other kids because that's what they saw. These uh, slightly, uh, well, very uncoordinated wiggly movements bumping into other kids. So there's this little six-year-old and we ended up having to go to court. So this is the kind of ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Like you start with, uh, a spatial difficulty building visual space and you end up in court with a judge who's looking at these two sides and we had this wonderful judge and she just sort of looked at the uh, school um, system and their um, advocates and said really a six-year-old you're talking about uh, are you sure he's sexually assaulted at six because you don't have any experts on your side and there's this whole fleet of experts saying he has dyspraxia and spatial confusion so what really um but that's what happens everything mm -hmm. breaks down everything breaks down and and it ripples outward from this um this tiny seemingly tiny thing that organizes our social world 
Mm. Uh, so the, the spatial distancing, the bubbles of space around us, that's the, that's the um, matrix of our social world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for sharing you know, that very personal story with, and that journey with, you know, that you experienced with your son and, and um, yeah, it was very heartfelt when I was reading it. And it was funny when I very first started reading, well, listening to it, all in my mind was like, did they have somebody assess his vestibular, his vestibular system? And I was so happy that when you sort of got to that point, I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, because obviously it was, as you say, and, I, and you talk in the book, I'm not going to read it out, but you talk about the vestibular system being the glue that really yeah. holds these, these components to, together. Yeah. Um, so we've covered a lot of information and there's things that I've left out that, um, that people, need, people need to read this book because if you're reading it from, from a therapist's point of view, particularly from a polyvagal point of view, there's lots of information in it that that helps you understand the body at a deeper level and make that connection and help people learn. <clears throat> um, um, you can bring this knowledge to, 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 the cli- to your clients as, as well. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to um, add to you think that I might have missed that we need to? I think we covered a lot of ground, so yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I will include in the show notes it's about how to learn more information about your work, your access to your website, um, to your other books. And, and I really hope that once I get finished reading your latest book that I can speak to you again because this is really valuable. Sure, sure. That one also has a sort of evolutionary mm. and a social um, perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which blends in beautifully with the work from Dr. Stephen Porges in the polyvagal theory, which is looking more at our autonomic nervous system, particularly our vagal system, mm-hmm. and how that lays the foundation for, and how the vagus nerve links into um, other cranial nerves related to facial expression, ear for listening, and tonal voice for how we um, engage socially as well. So this work connects so much into that mm-hmm. you know, body of work. Mm-hmm. well thank you very much again i really appreciate your time and uh, sure have a great evening you too i enjoyed it thank you again michael for sharing about your work please see the show notes for links to learn more about michael's lab at princeton and his book i can't recommend his book the spaces between us enough i find the work about peripersonal space incredibly interesting and so relevant to the work we do for information about the Safe and Sound Protocol Acoustic Interventions, please contact Integrated Listening Australia, if located in Australia or New Zealand, at integratedlistening.com.au. And for the rest of the world, contact Unite Integrated Listening Systems, located in Denver, Colorado, at integratedlistening.com. I'd love to hear from you, so please send any comments or questions or suggestions to sspodcast1 at gmail.com. That is sspodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. Remember to stay grounded and in a ventral vagal state as best you can. I hope you found the information in this episode helpful.
Thank you very much. And I look forward to connecting with you all next time.